glad to be here say amen. Good testimonies. I'll tell you what, we're happy, happy for that. Always good to be in the house of the Lord as it has already been said. And uh, I concur with Brother Mark Fisher's testimony. I, I miss it when I'm not here and don't understand why other people don't either. I'll just be honest with you. That, that's part. Y'all, everybody in here knows that there are birthmarks when babies come into the world. Right? I mean, I, I remember I can tell you where my birthmark is on my right right thigh out to the right. And it looked like when I was young, I haven't looked for it in a long time, it looked like a squirrel sitting there. So It's kind of funny. But, but you know there are birthmarks spiritually for believers, and one of them is a desire to be in the house of the Lord. Just that simple. Say, glory to God, please turn to the fourth book of the, of the Pentateuch, the book of Numbers. Uh, book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy that make up, they make up the five books of the Pentateuch that make up also what is known as the Torah, the T-O-R-A, the Torah. We're going to look at the significance of the red heifer, uh, the significance of the red heifer. The, in, in Hebrew, and I, I, I don't do well with English, so forgive me, it's para, P-A-R-A, adum, A-D-U-M-A. Adum. Aduma is what it is like from Adam, meaning red. That's what Adam means, from, from the ground, red, from clay. So um, that's what the red heifer is. So um, we're, I, look, I get in trouble every time I start to study because when I study something, it, it begins to grow. It grows and grows and grows. And I've, I've got something that I wrote just for me to kind of put my thoughts in, in order. I'm not going to read this. I'm going to use it as kind of a guide and an outline and something to provoke my memory to things, but it'll be made available. I'll put it, when I, when I put the uh, lesson up tonight, I'll put it up on, a, on our uh, sermon audio in a PDF file form, and if you go there, you can download it and uh, look at it if, if you choose to. It may help you. It may not help you. Now, I didn't look at every aspect of the red heifer. I've got two ideas that I want to present tonight. I want to look at the red heifer in a practical way, meaning what the Word of God says and, and uh, how God presents that to us, what it means biblically, but also want to look at it prophetically. And I'll probably start with the prophetic view. What, what's the big deal? Let's listen from, from you all, even before we read uh, in the book of uh, Numbers chapter 19, uh, before we even read the scripture that the Word of God has for us here in this passage that gives us uh, the, uh, uh, the instruction from God concerning the red heifer, uh, what do you all think is important in this hour that we live? And I know some of you, like Connie, Connie Morris, she's been on the internet searching and found some good stuff, and I asked her, I said, you want to teach tonight? So. It, she, she was laying out some really, really, really good stuff. So why do you think maybe the red heifer is important? Is it important? Well, it is. We got that nailed down, right? Anybody want to take a guess or state, make a statement as to why really quickly as we start? It has something to do with, with actually cleansing the flesh, not atonement. It has to do really with continuing fellowship, actually I think John chapter 13 would be a parallel New Testament chapter about, you know, cleansing when we fail. It has to do with being defiled from, from being exposed or touching a dead body. We'll get into that in a little bit. So it has to do with cleansing of the flesh, actually, more than, more than the heart, but a, but a, great, uh, a, a great possibility. 
Well, when you begin to think about it prophetically and the reason that it is significant prophetically, uh, there's a lot of idea that it's connected with the return of the Messiah. Now, we're looking for the return of Christ uh, in his second coming, but the Jewish world is looking for him in his first coming, his first appearing. So let's uh, see what we can glean from this chapter 19 of the book of Numbers. I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 1. I'll read down through and include at least verse 6 and get part of verse, verse 9. Chapter 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel. Now, it was given to the nation of Israel. By the way, they are the only nation that received the law. Everybody heard me say that. Say amen. It wasn't given to the Gentile world. We're not breaking the Sabbath if we cut grass on Saturday. And Sunday, everybody listening, some of y'all are not going to like this. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. We don't even have a Christian Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day after the Sabbath. It's the eighth day. So just throw that in. But the law was given to the nation of Israel, not to any Gentile nation. Now, if someone became a proselyted Jew, if they were willing to be circumcised and follow the baptismal rites and partake of the, uh, uh, all of the feasts, they were a proselyted Jew. They, they, they were recognized as such. But it wasn't given to the Gentile world. And just said, speaking to the children of Israel, that they bring a red heifer. And by the way, a heifer is a female cow. Without spot, wherein where is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. Now pay attention to those qualifications biblically, because I'm going to refer to some other ones that may have been added traditionally. And that's one of the things that I found out about my study. It's hard for me to discern what is just simply biblical uh, as far as Israel is concerned, plus uh, the oral law or the traditional law that they add to it, which got, got them in a lot of trouble. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar, not Aaron, but Eleazar's son, the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eleazar, the priest, shall take of her blood with his finger, and shall sprinkle her blood directly before the tabernacle, the congregation, seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood, her dung shall, be burnt, shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. I'll read all of verse 9, but I want to get specifically the last part. And as a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. Here it is, John. It is a purification for sin. It has to do with the body becoming defiled. One of the things, one of the reasons the red heifer is on people's minds that, uh, that are Bible students and that deal with prophecy. In October of 2022, matter of fact, September, not October, September the 15th, I believe, as if I've recorded things right, five red heifers arised, arrived at the uh, David Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel, and they were shipped from a, 
from a rancher in, does anybody know where it was at? Everybody knows that, isn't that amazing? From Texas, five red heifers, female cows, were shipped uh, to, uh, to Israel, and they have them put up. They're watching them, and, and uh, they're keeping an eye on them, and they're hoping and praying that one of them will meet the biblical and also the rabbinic or the traditional uh, expectations and the demands of, uh, of a red heifer in order to be able to be offered and to meet the requirements that God has set up for this, uh, uh, for this ceremony, for this offering. It's not so much a sacrifice as it was an offering, and I know those two words are a little bit synonymous, uh, but it wasn't offered as a sacrifice like a bullock or a lamb or a ram or a pigeon or what, whatever. This, this, this is something a little bit different. Now, as we think about this prophetically, it's, it's exciting to me the things that are, that are, connected, um, that are connected with it, and, and here is why. Two reasons, and, and there, there are more. So like I said, I'm not going to exhaust this subject tonight, and any question you have will be more than welcome, and also comments added. They believe that, that in order for the nation of Israel to be able to rebuild their temple, that Mount Moriah, which is the temple mount, it is the mount that Abraham offered Isaac on, it is the mount that David purchased from a man of the name of Ornan, or Aruna, who had a threshing floor there, uh, where the angel paused when he was bringing judgment against the nation of Israel because David had numbered Israel. He, he bought the threshing floor from Aruna. That is the place where Solomon built the first temple. It is the place that Ezra led the effort to rebuild the second temple. It is the place that King Hezekiah expanded and worked 46 years on the temple. And it's the place that Titus came to in 70 AD to destroy the temple. And it will be the place where the third temple is to be rebuilt. Does anybody know how we know a third temple is going to be rebuilt? I love it when I can help you. Let's go to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now there's no verse of scripture in the Old Testament that I can remember. It's a big book and I can't remember everything. But I've read it a time or two. And there is no place in the Old Testament that I can recall that there is a command from God that says, Now, a certain, certain time, y'all get back in the land, you're going to rebuild a temple. The third temple. But there's going to be a third temple built. I know the Old Testament speaks a lot about, um, uh, about the millennial temple, but it, it doesn't give a command that I remember to build it. Look here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this has to do, this has to do with, with the Antichrist that will manifest himself after the church is gone. And Listen to what he says in verse, um, I want to pick it up in verse 3 and 4. That no man deceive you by any means. For that, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man, man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now, 
the day that he's talking about is the day of the Lord. That extended period of time that, that includes the tribulation as well as the millennial period. A thousand and seven years at least. And the, and the Antichrist, although... Y'all remember Gorbachev? You remember that thing he had on his forehead? Y'all remember all the time they were wondering if he was the Antichrist. So that was the market. Y'all remember those... Nobody will know who he is before the church is gone. That's what this is teaching us. It will take the removal of the church before the Antichrist is manifest, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Quickly back to Matthew 24. Keep that thought in mind, and I'll show you. I'll connect this with a very important uh, statement that Jesus made that uh, he referred to, uh, or he reached over in the book of Daniel and brought it up to the New Testament and show you how uh, that, that it connects. Um, I know I'm looking at it in chapter 24. Where does it talk about the, the abomination of desolation? There it is, verse 15. He said in verse 15 of Matthew 24, this is, this is the Olivet Discourse. This is the answer of the last two questions that Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask over there in uh, verse 3 when he said, when shall these things be? The first question deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. Luke answers that. Jesus did. Luke recorded it in chapter 21. The last two questions what shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? I answered here in Matthew 24. Look at verse 15. Wherefore, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of the abomination, the abomination of desolation, we know it as, or the abomination that maketh desolate, spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, and whosoever readeth, let him understand. Then let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which be in the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For there then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to, the, to this time no nor ever shall be." This reference Jesus made to the abomination of desolation refers back to the time of Daniel's writing when a man by the name of, of um, what is his name, Epiphanes. Oh, someone help me out. Anyway, well, I didn't study that before I came. The Lord didn't lay it on my mind. But, but uh, this... This guy, when he overcome, uh, when he overcome, he led the world. There, there was Nebuchadnezzar. Then there was the Persians and and the Medians, and then came Alexander the Great, and then the Romans. And who was it? This guy by the name, his last name is Epiphanes. He was a picture of the Antichrist because when he came into Jerusalem, what he did, he went into the temple that was still standing, the second temple, and he offered swine's flesh upon the altar, actually offered a swine, and set up 
set up idols in the holy place. Are y'all with me? Y'all remember that in our study out of the book of Daniel or your personal study? So he prefigured, he prefigured what the Antichrist was going to do and what Paul was saying here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When the Antichrist comes, the abomination that maketh desolate will be in the middle of the tribulation when Satan is cast down out of heaven. He becomes incarnate in man. And when he does that, He'll go into the temple in Jerusalem, this third temple that is going to be rebuilt. And in that temple, he'll declare himself to be God. And that's what, he, that's what he wants to be right now. He wants to dethrone God and set himself up as God himself. Hey, look, I got good news. That ain't going to happen. Amen. God's never going to give up his throne. And, uh, but that's what he's talking about. So prophetically, this, uh, this, the, the ashes of a red heifer, which is used to cleanse. And see, here's where tradition goes and comes in versus what the Word of God says. It was used to cleanse the individuals that had come in contact with a dead person or, or walked over a grave unknowingly or touched a dead bone or the other things in chapter 19 of the book of Numbers that you can read for yourself if they're in a tent and somebody dies. And all the vessels in there, they gotta be, they gotta be sprinkled with, uh, with this water of cleansing, this, this water of separation. It would purify them, would make them ceremonially clean so they could be used again. But nowhere have I been able to find that according to the Word of God before the temple is to be built, it's got to be sprinkled with this pure water. But wait, in their theory or in the rabbinical teaching, there is good sound theory in that because what has happened to Jerusalem since 70, 18, at least 27, 28, or 9 times to this present day? Well, it hadn't been rebuilt, but, but there's been enemies that come against it, and they have been, we'll call it destroyed. That's not the best word. It's not the word my mind's trying to figure out. And there have been a lot of dead men on that mount. A lot of people have died on Mount Moriah. So the rabbinical theory has at least a ground of reason so that that place where so many dead bodies were, were found because of the skirmishes and the wars and the different uh, nations that come against it to overtake it are found and laid. So the idea of cleansing because of what death does, dead bodies, there's an idea about that. The second thing is it's real. The, the priests, those that are a part of the tribe of Levi, the Kohen, K-O-H-E-N, coming from the name Korah, K-O-R, A-H, they had to be sprinkled. They they had to be cleansed. Now, I'll never forget. David, do you remember the year, the first year that we went to the Temple Mount Institute? Was it 2028, 2011? One of those dates, when we were on a trip to Israel, um, I I had it in our plan and in in our itinerary that we visited the Temple Mount Institute. Now, in, in, in that, in, in, and if I, I don't know whether I wrote anything down about that or not. I could have, maybe even should have. But I believe it's back in 2004, 2008, 
that the Sanhedrin, after several years, was, uh, was reconstituted. I mean, I mean it, it, was, it was reestablished. And they started the Temple Mount Institute. And what that group of people did was they began to either discover, because of archaeology work, uh, different utensils that were used on the Temple Mount in, in the temple in worship and sacrificial service. They, they gathered those up, or they made the utensils like the brazen altar. We saw the brazen uh, altar that was there, even high priestly garments that uh, the high priest is going to use. We saw the shovels and the pans and, and the flesh hooks and, and all these kind of things. The furniture, the furniture of the temple, with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant, which they think is still hidden and some people know where it's at, although Indiana Jones hadn't discovered it yet. Um, they, they think that it's hidden somewhere under the, the Temple Mount. They, there are people that really believe that, and it may very well be. When Josephus wrote about the destruction of the temple, he didn't write anything about the things that were hidden, but they believe that there is both treasure as well as, as the Ark of the Covenant that, that, is, that is preserved there and, and hidden there, and it may very well be. Um, but anyway, in order to establish the worship connected with the temple, these priests had to be clean. And I'll never forget when they were talking there at the Institute and they were saying there's two problems here. Number one, we don't have any ashes of the red heifer to cleanse uh, the priests if we could figure out who the priests were. And somebody said, well, you know, there are a lot of people whose last name is Levi, you know, or, or, or some connotation uh, to that, like Mark Levin, to name one, he is a Jew, his last name Levin, no doubt, possibly, highly probable. He was connected with the tribe of Levi. That's kind of a dead giveaway, even I can figure that one out. But you know why they couldn't uh, for sure uh, be able to determine who belonged to what tribe? Remember in 70 A.D., all of the genealogical work of the nation of Israel was destroyed. All of the genealogy of all the Jews, with the exception of one man, was destroyed in 70 A.D. Does anybody remember who that one man is? His name is Jesus, and God's preserved his in his word. So, so they say, they say, and Connie was telling me about this, through DNA testing, they have been able to identify... Uh, uh, the Kohan, K-O-H-E-N, and they have identified several of them and they've already trained them about how to perform the service of the priest on the Temple Mount when, not if, but when uh, the third temple is built. When it gets ready to be built, what they do to cleanse the Temple Mount and what will happen after that uh, edifice is built. Now, I read somewhere, and I even think I've got it in my note, that they say that if this red heifer, one of these five heifers, uh, meets the uh, qualifications and the demands of the law and even of the tradition of the Talmud and, and the mission and the other sacred writings that are highly exalted and honored in Israel, if there is one of those, they said within two years, that temple could be built. 
Well, there's a lot of things connected with that, but I'll tell you what, I believe once they get started on that thing, it won't take them two years to build it. I, don't, I, I really believe it'll be quick speed without a doubt in my mind. But they have made preparation for that, and they're ready to go. But God, God's got a great sense of humor. Uh, what year, what year, and I know you all know this, and I know it, I'm just asking you, did the, did the nation of Israel reclaim the city of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, as their capital city of the nation of Jerusalem? What year was that? you all remember? 67. They captured Jerusalem, the whole thing. So today, Israel, or Jerusalem, is a divided city. When you go to Jerusalem, they talk about four quarters. Do they not? I mean, it's divided in four ways. Now, it's under, and I say this lightly and yet sincerely, it's under the control of Israel. But I'll tell you what, the Palestinian presence there is undeniable. The Muslim presence, which are Palestinians, in the mosque of the Omar. Hey, if that mosque wasn't there, they'd have already got a temple on that mount. But can I tell you why they haven't? It wasn't time. For 2,000 years since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., they have not had the first red heifer. Y'all know that? There have only been, according to, again, rabbinical tradition, there have only been nine red heifers since the first was given to Moses while they were in the wilderness. Only nine up until this present time. There's a rabbi by the name of Maenides, or Maimonides, I believe it was. Listen to what he said. And I, I think I wrote this down. And it, this was exciting. I don't have any way to identify or determine whether or not this is true, but listen to what he said. In light of the five red heifers being watched in Israel, not, this is a different rabbi. I gave you the wrong name. His, this rabbi is K-U-P-I-E-T-K-Y. You try to pronounce that one. Is recorded as saying, and I quote, listen to this. I really believe that the red heifer was born this year, speaking of 2022. Meaning that one red heifer that will meet the requirements biblically and also rabbinically. I've got to add that because the traditional aspect of, of Jewish, the Jewish world today is a real major part of it. He explained, and here's why he says this, that the Hebrew year 5781, which is last year, when set in the form of an acronym reads, now get this, for it is the year of the red heifer. Oh, y'all ought to like that more than what you're acting like you like that. He said, now whether that's true or not, if you, if, if you take Hebrew letters and they're really related and connected with, with numbers and whatnot, if you, if you translate that in, into words and letters, he said that's what the acronym of 5781 means. Now I have no way of checking that out, but it was so good whether it's true or not, I liked it. It spoke to my heart. So I, I wanted to share that. And can I tell you, it's very possible. You say, why hadn't these things happened before? Israel wasn't ready. The world wasn't ready. Folks, I'm going to tell you all something. I believe we're just on the verge of the second coming of Christ. 
Man, when we begin to look at prophecy after prophecy, if I would go nowhere else but the second book of Timothy, the third chapter, and those 19 different characteristics of last days, that would pretty well get me to believe in that Jesus' is coming is soon at hand. But why now? See, that would be the question, why now? Not just one red heifer. A few years ago, Melody was born. Y'all remember Melody? She was a red heifer. Now, you know what they had to do to this red heifer? Look at the requirements, the qualifications. First of all, it had to be a female cow, a heifer, a she-cow, moo. Uh, number two, it, had, it must be slain. Now, listen, this is amazing how they write this. In its third year and no greater than the third year meaning that it had to be at least two years old and one day before they could slay it. Now, during that period of time, they watched them. It must be completely without blemish and spots. If it has more than two other color hairs, and the, and the hairs are not exactly red, they're, they're reddish-brown, but if they look at any hair follicle, and it has both a black and white or black and black or white and white, that the whole cow is discarded. And they look at every hair with a magnifying glass. They inspect that thing right now. Now, not only does it have to be red in color, but its hooves and nose has to be red. Isn't that amazing? It could have not been pregnant or used in any type of breeding process. And, and this is now according to rabbinical history. It could never have been harnessed. That's Bible. No yoke upon it. That's what it says here. Or have been used in any way in labor. Rabbinic tradition adds and says, there couldn't have even been a bird that sat on its back, nor a cloth laid on its back. So see, that's where it's kind of hard to discern, you know, Steve. I, I can answer that, maybe not to your satisfaction, but to mine. Two reasons. Number one, they're looking for Messiah. And they're as stirred up about His first coming, Steve, in many ways as we are about His second coming. They know it is nigh. And there, whether it's rabbinic or other teachings that we, I don't have privy to, that, that when this tenth cow shows up, Messiah will come. Number ten, what does it mean? Completion. It sure does. So there's a lot of ideology that goes along with this, you know, more than just rabbinical teaching that... Uh, that, that would lead us to believe that this is real, me to believe to, that this is really prophetically important too for the, for, for the Christian. Uh, without a doubt, there's a reason that there has been no red heifers born for 2,000 years. And now all of a sudden we've got five possibilities. Oh, that's what I was going to say. It, it's mixed with, you, you know it's exciting for us to think, but two things. Number one, if they do, if this is one of these heifers, you know, is legitimate, this could bring on a lot of tragedy, a lot of agony, a lot of war, a lot of distress, a lot of disease, both initially trying to get that thing built. Number two, if it does get built, 
that's, that's signaling that the Antichrist is soon to manifest himself. And then the greatest time of, of tribulation and agony known to mankind will unfold itself. I don't believe any of these things are coincidental relating to any of them, but yes. Now, and in light of, and I've even got it in, in this a statement of, in light of the current uh, condition in Israel, both politically and globally, it would cause a lot of problems. But here's what I want to tell you. This is what I said on the Temple Mount that day when we at the Temple Mount Institute. When it's time, God will work it out. Well, there's a question about that, Judy. Do you remember when we were on the Temple Mount and we saw the Mosque of Omar? Several hundred yards or feet from that to the north, there was a gazebo. Do you remember that gazebo? Well, there are a lot of people that believe that's where actually the temple was set. And if you remember the Eastern Gate, all right, that's a very important thing. It's not the original Eastern Gate, but all the gates of that are there today are, are on top of where the original gates were. They build up on top of them. If you look at that now, if you, if you put a straight line from Mount Olive through the eastern gate, that mosque of Omar is offset. Yeah. Well, they, they think that that stone that's, that's in the middle of the mosque of Omar, that's all it's in there, just a rock and a bunch of real dirty carpets with all kinds of, of toe jam on it, Okay. Well, that's where Muhammad has supposedly made his trip. You all know that. But, that, but there are some people in, 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 Jew, in, 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 in Judaism that believes that that stone is actually the, the cornerstone of planet Earth. Now, whether it is or not, I don't know. I just like the potential of these kind of things. But, but whether or not that is the place where the holiest of holies actually set or over where the gazebo is, it's still a political hot button. It would be easier to maneuver the political situation around to where they would agree to allow a build of a holy place for the Jewish world and leave intact that Muslim uh, uh, holy place, the third holiest place in, in Islam intact. That is very... I always, I always wonder when the war was going on what it would be like for one of those Scud missiles that got, got astray and went and hit that mosque of Omar and just blowed it out of the way. I just... just well, see, that's, what, that's one of the things he's going to do. I, I believe the Antichrist, when he comes, will have an answer for, for Jerusalem and a lot of other things. And when he signs that peace treaty, at the beginning, that's what will begin the tribulation when the Antichrist puts his John Henry uh, or Hancock, whatever it is, on that peace treaty for seven years, then that's, that's when the tribulation begins. And that would, would allow that, that to happen. So, um, now what I've... What I've actually accomplished tonight is hopefully to uh, stir up a lot of questions curiosity. and curiosity. And that's the way Bible study should be. Bible study isn't designed to answer all questions. It's designed to provoke Bible study. But anyway, anyway, I honestly believe this is one piece of the pu puzzle to let us know what we already know. Jesus is coming soon. Well, we don't know. We don't know. It's possible that the Mosque of Omar will be taken down. It's more probable that, like we were just saying, when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, he'll work that out to where the Mosque of Omar and the temple can cohabit. I don't know how that can happen, but there's a lot of things I don't know. Well, that's what I say. Wouldn't it have been, wouldn't it have been really a uh, funny thing if one of those Scud missiles had come in there and taken it out? That would just have been hilarious, you know. All right, let's stand and